Hi, I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. Welcome to Stages Podcast, where we're bringing creation and connection to center stage. Stages Podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Oh, it's autumn. It's sweater weather. And here in the Northeast, it is also time to start preparing for the stillness of winter. Some trees change color and shed leaves and carloads of leaf peepers put on their sweaters and head to the Northeast to bathe in its beauty. But the process of leaf shedding is so much more than just a tourist attraction. When a tree sheds, it conserves energy and strength. It pulls the nutrients from each leaf and then allows that leaf to fall away to the ground. Over time, it's covered in and creates fertile topsoil for new life. And just like the trees, it is the perfect time of year for all of us to let the things that no longer serve us fall away. I love that image, pulling wisdom from past experiences and then letting them fall away in order to grow new dreams. But letting go isn't easy. It's a practice like everything else. And sometimes we need a little help navigating that process. And this is where BetterHelp can help. BetterHelp offers customized online therapy, either on video or live phone chat sessions. It is very affordable and you can speak to someone within 48 hours. A good therapist can really help you pull wisdom from the past and let go with kindness and courage. I highly recommend. BetterHelp has a special offer for Sage's podcast listeners. You receive 10% off your first month with BetterHelp. So many of our listeners have taken advantage of this and we thank you because when you support BetterHelp, you support Sage's podcast all while supporting your own well-being. So just for today, put on a new sweater and then I want you to close your eyes, pick one thing that you can learn and grow from, watch it change color and fall away and then grow a new dream. Log on to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, slash stages, and love where you are now. Thanks, BetterHelp. And there's chick stuff, which I didn't do, because as I said, I was bullied as a young woman, so I, I just, uh, chick stuff freaks me out. So there Chick you stuff freaks me out. <laughs> the yeah. first Manny Petty I ever got was the day I got cast in the Will Rogers Folly stuff. Oh, with me. Oh, my God. It was the first show that she and I ever did. Oh, really? Together. Oh, and that's my, fun. My that makes me laugh like, that that's one of your core memories is your first Manny Petty. My first Manny Petty. Because I was like, <laughs> I was in my 20s. I was like, and my roommate was like, come on, we're going to go celebrate. I was like, oh, this exists. I'm doing this all the time now. I love it. <laughs> that's amazing. I've been invited. Like, women have invited me to do it for like opening or whatever. And I was oh, like, go. just, I don't know what it is. And it scares me. I'm a germaphobe. And I'm like, oh. things I see people put their fingers in and I don't know. <laughs> it just freaks me out. I, I would, I think I would ruin it <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> so, I can't believe how much, probably stress, go. how much stress I've caused you just talking about Manny Petty. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Today's guest is a 2020 MacArthur Fellow award-winning playwright and choreographer. She's a Native American Lakota playwright who co-founded the Indigenous Direction, the nation's leading consulting company for Indigenous artists and audiences. They create space for Indigenous artists and stories in the mainstream theater to counter misrepresentation of Native American perspectives in broader society. Her satirical comedy, The Thanksgiving Play, 
performed at Playwrights Horizons in 2018 to fantastic reviews, and will be making its Broadway debut in 2023, directed by Tony Award-winning Town director Rachel Chavkin. The Thanksgiving play explores what is right and wrong about woke America. But that's not all. She has more plays coming to Broadway, and we're going to talk about that in the next hour. Please welcome Broadway's newest, most unique, and powerful voice, mm. Larissa Fasthorse. Larissa Fasthorse, to the stage, please. Larissa, to the stage. Mm. Uh, thank you welcome. for that. <laughs> and that word powerful is so, so true. To hear about your upbringing, to hear about how ballet dancing was really your primary focus. But so many of my friends that came into the art form in the world of ballet are kind of trying to unlearn being told what to do, how to do it. The boundaries are tight within the ballet world. And somehow you found your way from not just listening and following the rules, but into these expansive creative spaces. How did that transformation happen for you? It's interesting because also I will say the other thing about ballet dancers is that we're very um, self-motivated. We have to do so much work on our own, you know, unlike poor actors. I would say I like actors, Um, but you know, we're, we're, you're told you're showing something once and then you're expected to know it and go away and work on it yourself. It's not about working on it in the room. It's not about the process, you know, it's about, okay, you've been shown it once you're, you, now you're responsible for that and you bring it back perfected and you work on it on your own. And, and yes, there's work in the room as well, but um, so we're very self-motivated and we're expected to do a lot of work on our own. Mm -hmm. We're expected to do additional workouts every night. We're expected to do so many extra things. And I think um, that in addition with the fact that I was a balancing dancer, so I was brought up in the balancing form and it's interesting because people think of him as so restrictive, which he was in some ways, but on the other side, you have to look at his choreography and his choreography Um, changed vastly for each performer because he was always looking at the artistry of each performer. How is this person going to do this role differently from that person? And he would change the music tempo. He'd change the steps. He'd change the the tone of the piece to match every artist. That's very uncommon, right? In yeah, oh, hugely yeah, uncommon. Very uncommon yeah. in balance. <clears throat> yeah, and it's funny because now it's very much because of the balancing trust. You know, they've had to sort of freeze his work in a lot of ways. At the time, if you watched I mean, different ballerinas doing the same piece, mm-hmm. you'd see vastly different versions of them. And so that's the way I was brought up: is looking in ballet, is looking at the artistry of each individual. And I think so. I had a maybe a different way of looking. At, at dance and, and such in a, in a more expansive, creative way um, of responding to the moment, which I think was really helpful. And also, honestly, you know, if you look at my plays, they're very um, movement based, even though there's not dance in them. They're very much based on movement and movement around the stage. And my stage directions are not many, but they're very specific. This person needs to be here because this moment is going to physically depend. There's a lot of physical comedy and humor mm-hmm. and physical interaction that happens that ha- that reveals a lot about the characters by where they are in space. Um, and I think all of that comes from my dance background. So, you know, for, so there's that one side you can say like you were talking about, but there's another side that you get as a dancer that I think has done nothing but help me. What cut your ballet career short? What happened? You said that there was injuries like everybody. Yeah. I I mean, I was lucky actually. I was, you know, 29 when I did my last full ballet and Mm. crazily that's kind of old in (laughs) ballet world. Um, So I was really fortunate that I kept going until I was 29, but I just been having recurring injuries. I actually started ballet as physical therapy because I had problems with my legs. There's a play about that. And so I was always 
working against my body in ballet. It was always a struggle because I had less than zero when I started because it was purely therapy and then ended up you know, working myself into being a dancer. It was surprising it took that long <laughs> for my body to break down because I was always fighting against something that my body was actually born not to do. Can we talk a little bit about your upbringing? I'm always so curious about creative people and how they started out, you know, in their families. Were their families supportive? Were they surrounded by creativity and music and dance and art? Was it something that was encouraged? And I had read that you were removed from your reservation at a certain point and were brought into a white family. Can you talk a little about that and how it informed the voice that you have as a play right now? Yeah, so um, I am Lakota. I'm a member of Sachangi Lakota tribe, and my people, my our reservations in South Dakota. Um, and for various personal reasons, my family was not able to raise me, um, and so I was adopted by um, is an open adoption with a white family that they knew well. When I was just a baby, I was only a year old when they brought me to them. My parents at that time were very young, just incapable of raising me, and so the parents that I got had been waiting 22 years to get a child. Wow, and so. Um, you know, I always tell people, I'm not just the like, you know, only child. I'm the miracle child. So. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so I'm, yes, I'm the miracle child, which is something I have to fight against <laughs> as an adult and be careful that I'm, uh, you know, not uh, continuing to believe I'm a miracle child. So every time but your also, husband right, gets mad about something, you say, you can't be mad at me. I'm the miracle child. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Take the trash out. I'm the miracle child. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, you know, and that also has its advantages, right? So that I was, my parents were had been waiting so long. And so their life, they'd had a life together for 22 years. And so now their life was entirely about me. And um, we came, I came from a very low middle class, very low middle class background. You know, my folks didn't have a lot of resources, but they had love and support and they had a love for the arts for sure. Both of my parents were into music. They both played musical instruments in school. We always sang in choir. They both played for our church. I remember going with them to nursing homes as a child and they'd sing and play for folks and I'd sit on laps and, um, you know, doing that sort of thing on the weekends. Um, and then my dad was also very crafty, but also he was a painter. He painted and, um, but he does like, he knits. My mom does crochet. Like they just were always making things. That was just always part of my life. And I was terrible at music. I wanted to play an instrument and do piano. I was required to take three years of piano and it took me three years to get through two years of piano. Um, I was just terrible at it. And um, I think ballet in a way, I was first put in physical therapy, but it was a way of me connecting with music and my parents because they loved classical music so much and being able to connect those things was really great for me. I think it's really interesting that you grew up in this family that, um, you know, was so tactile and created everything. And then you married a sculptor. I'm obsessed yeah. with the, the sculptures on the wall behind you. How did you guys meet? <laughs> yeah, actually we met... Um, when uh, he had, so my husband's sculptor and my best friend from ballet school, her mother was a sculptress and they had studio space together and they were having a show together here in um, Orange County, actually, California. And I was out visiting my girlfriend, taking ballet classes with her. And I met Ed um, it was during a summer break. He was, and still is, <laughs> 20 years <laughs> older than me. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was interesting. I, I scared him out of his own opening. He left because he didn't want to be the creepy old guy. <laughs> and I, I had to chase him. So I had to, um, I got his number and I called him, made up some reason I wanted to see more of his work <laughs> and, and such. And I had to chase him around for a bit. Um, and within a year, we were engaged and got married a few weeks later. 
How did you maintain your language, your native language and spirituality and the ties that you clearly have extremely strong ties? And a lot of times in adoption, that doesn't happen, right? So how mm-hmm. is it because yeah. they were friends of your parents? So you got to see your birth parents often? How Tell me how that unfolded, how it happened, how you kept that important line in your life. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, to be perfectly honest, a lot was lost, right? So like, I didn't grow up speaking my language and I didn't grow up on the reservation. So that, that definitely had disadvantages culturally. Mm-hmm. I've heard you speak. I do now. Yeah, I've been learning. Oh, yeah. Oh, you've been learning. <laughs> um, I've been learning my language as an adult learner, which has been really slow and horrific, but I do my best. <laughs> I'm terrible at learning languages in general. Um, and Lakota has not been any easier. So my dad, um, my hunko dad, adopted dad, he worked on four different reservations. And so he was knew tons, tons of my people. Um, And so he um, had a lot of contacts. And so my parents had this kind of interesting parade of successful Native people in my life, you know, and that were elders and were in contact with me or gave me leadership or guidance in in cultural ways and and things. And so, you know, really high achieving Native people, I were just constantly in my life. Um, So again, I I didn't see limitations because unfortunately where I grew up, there are a lot of limitations because of racism. Um, Native people are kept out of so many things and kept out of really um, not given the same opportunities and the same um, consideration and applications and things like that where I'm from. So I was really fortunate that I, I saw, though, that, you know, there are people that are able to, you know, start in some ways overcome that, um, those biases against us. And, um, you know, no dogs or Indian signs are were still in my childhood. You know, it's, it's they're not ancient. Um, you know, so I had these people that I spent a lot of time with throughout my life that they made sure I always had connection to elders that have been in my life. And then as an adult, I've had different, you know, um, teachers and guides that I work with back home. I do a lot of work back home and on my reser- the various reservations, not just mine, uh, working with youth and playwriting and theater and all of that. So I do a ton of that work. I can't believe it when you said there were actual signs from your childhood that said no dogs and no dogs, no Indians allowed yeah. in, in the windows of of store yeah like stores yeah 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 those were carried into the 80s i'd say so yeah the 80s that's unbelievable yeah it's still it's a wild i mean it's wild because you know here in los angeles people don't know what i am i get a lot of south american a lot of greek a lot of latinx of some kind but back home people know like um it's, it's weird i was weirdly happy when I was, I was like, Oh, I'm home. So I was in a park in a, a, a non-reservation town in um, South Dakota and the security guard came and there's a performance happening and security guard came around and, and made myself, made a bunch of us move and get out. We're sitting on this granite like edge of this fountain and um, made us move and said, you know, you can't sit on it. That's artwork. You can't sit there. It's like, Oh, okay. So it just looks like a, you know, it's a gigantic piece of granite. Um, but okay. And so we moved over and we're sitting on the ground and then he literally ushered a white family over and had them sit there. And I was, and I looked around, I was like, oh, he just kicked all the natives off. And so oh, I was like, oh, wow. hey, he can tell I'm native. I'm home. I'm home. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, it's still like that. It's so open. And it, it literally just like brought this white family over, sent him where we were and went on his way, from, you know, rearranging and while all the native people are sitting on the ground. During COVID times, when a lot of these Zoom meetings were happening, there was a, uh, I don't know if I would call it a movement, but there was an awakening where a lot of us started to add our pronouns, but we also would say what Native American land we were meeting from. 
Um, for example, I'm in the Lenape, is that correct? Lenape, I'm pr pronouncing that correctly, here in New Jersey. As a Native American, do you feel it is a movement that has worth or meaning? Do you feel it's more performative? How does that translate to you as an indigenous person? Yeah, so um, I'm a huge proponent of land acknowledgement um, just because it's still very new. So many people don't yet for sure know what land they're on. So until those yeah. things become second nature to everyone, mm -hmm. where everywhere we go, we know whose land we're on and we know how to say it. Until that's second nature, I think we need to all just keep doing the practice. You know, it's just like being in school. You have to just keep practicing or being in rehearsal yeah. until you get it right. Um, and so I think we all need to have that knowledge be just, you know, come to us. It has to come to us immediately and quickly and roll off our tongue. And so we're not there yet. It's so funny when people talk about being performative. It's like, well, then don't make it performative. That's up to the, the person doing it. Right. right? The intention so the with which it. it is being presented. Yeah. Right? yeah. They need to, you know, be real and uh, and actually acknowledge. I always say to people, it's just like when you go to someone, if you go to a party at someone's house, you don't just like wander in, not know whose house you're in, not acknowledge the host, you know. You, you go to, the, you know, whose house you're going to, you know, the name of the people you go in, you, you say to them, oh, what a lovely home you have. Thank you for having me. How can I help? That's all you're doing with land acknowledgement. You're just acknowledging that you're in someone's home and you need to know who they are. Mm -hmm. You need to say, thank you for having me here. And how can I help? You know, and, and that's the step that I think a lot of people don't get to <laughs> is how can I help? And so, and then finding out how you can help and how you can follow through and be a good guest. You don't wander into someone's home and just sit there and never acknowledge them and never say anything to them and not know who they, what their names are, or, or you don't say to them, oh, I'm in your home now. Tell me what a wonderful home you have and tell me who you are, which is what a lot of theaters want to do. They want to tell the native say go to native people and say here come in and tell us who you are and tell it you know you do it mm -hmm. and it's like that doesn't make any sense the, the guest is the one that has to acknowledge whose home they're in mm -hmm. and the guest is the one that has to say thank you and the guest is the one that has to offer to help not the host <laughs> the host shouldn't have to do that now if, obviously it's the host's place if they want to speak they get to then they have all right to speak if they'd like to but it's not our place as a guest to demand the host you know say things about their own home, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. tell me what a nice home you have and how Very grateful true. you are that yes. I'm here, <laughs> you know? So yeah. we all need to be able to do that. We just all need to be good guests. It's that simple. So if you come at it with uh, the intention of being a good guest and authentically acknowledging how you feel being a guest and the things that you'd like to do to be a good guest and how you can help and what further things you can take, actions you can take, then it's not going to be performative. It's going to be honest. And mm -hmm. then there's always the next step. So then what is it you can do as a good guest? Right. And that's the, that's the important step we have to get to next. I just mm -hmm. read an article in Theater Mania, and it highlighted women playwrights that were coming to this season of Broadway. And you're quoted, and I'm not going to misquote you, so I'm actually <laughs> going to read it. So this is your voice. Tell me if it's true. I look at the way male playwrights are allowed to express themselves, things that I hear them say in a room that if I said I'd be called difficult, which I have been called many times, said Larissa Fasthorse, who will be the first self-identifying Native American woman ever to be represented on Broadway when the Thanksgiving play bows in the spring. I've been called too hard to work with, all of those things. I'm working on several projects with groups of playwrights and there are men in these groups and stuff that they can get away with saying that I could never say. And I was like, amen. I know this is something that we have all voiced 
over and over, but when I read it yesterday, especially when you are right on the precipice of coming full force into the Broadway community, but to say that before your play even opens, for some reason, touched me in a way that I went, okay, she is willing to lay down the foundation and to lay down the law and to express who she is before anybody else is going to put out the, the critical voice. And that, for me, really did bode a great strength. Is it just a time in your life where you're going to say these things regardless of how the optics are? Yeah, I mean, it's a combination. It's a combination of being miracle child, right? So um, I was always, always told to express myself completely um, and always encouraged to say exactly, you know, what I thought and to stand up for myself. I was very fortunate as a, a young woman. I was raised without limits and without the concept of limits by my parents. Um, there was never any thought that there was something I couldn't do. I have a natural assumption that people just want to hear what I have to say. <laughs> so there's that. Um, miracle child syndrome. But I think also, sure. I mean, I had the ballet career first, which is a super selfish career, right? It's all about yourself and focusing on yourself every day and staring at yourself in that mirror all day. And, mm -hmm. and it was really important to me um, when I left that career to have a career that was a career of service. And I'm an artist, so I had to find a way to be of service in the arts. And so what I found was a way to have a career of service in the arts through not just writing, but being an advocate and for the way that I present myself in the world and the way I talk in the world and the way that I um, stand up for others and try to make space, especially for Native American artists, but also for women. You know, it's funny because when you, you read that quote, I mean, as soon as I saw it, I immediately thought, oh, no, you know, I'm going. this isn't good. It's, mm. it's too direct. It's too this. But that's exactly the point, right? I mean, yeah. it's, there's nothing wrong with what I said. I'm just stating facts. And yet I, I also internally cringed. I was like, uh oh, I'm, I'm going to be in trouble now because now I sound difficult. And, you know, it's like, I'm just stating facts. Like it, it wasn't angry, it's, but people will perceive it as angry. People will perceive it as forceful. People receive it as powerful or whatever that means, you know, and a man could would just say something straight out and not even worry about it, you know? And um, the fact that we have to worry about the fact that I just said a fact is supporting the fact, right? Exactly. Worth <laughs> illuminating. That's exactly yeah. right. Let's talk a little bit about the Thanksgiving play, which is coming to Broadway this spring. Explain a little bit about the concept of the play. Yeah. So the Thanksgiving play, I call it a comedy and a satire. So um, I do write satirical work, but it um, has a lot of comedy. And the comedy to me was really important um, as a gift to audiences. I do not like going into the theater and being bashed over the head. Um, I, I just don't. <laughs> like, I, I, if I'm going to spend all that money and time, I mean, that's fine. There's people that are into that and yay, go for it. I'm just, it's not me. Um, I like to go and enjoy myself and in, in, in some way and enjoy my fellow humans um, and have an experience together. That's why I leave the house. Um, and so the Thanksgiving play was written as a comedic satire. So it's, it's got a com it's got a lot of genuine, just laugh out loud comedy for everybody. But it's about um, what I call performative wokeness. So um, super liberal, well-meaning, the people I work with 90% of the time in theater, um, who are so well-meaning and so liberal and so wrapped up in their own, and they're all white, and, and they're so wrapped up in their own trying to be goodness um, and topping each other's goodness and wokeness that they um, 
are just putting themselves into pretzels that are not helping the people they're trying. They claim they're trying to help. Mm-hmm. This should be my life story. <laughs> Almost being too delicate, too choosing of the words, and all of a sudden the energy and dynamic of everything is just awkward all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just and wrong. And and, and wrong. honestly, you know, um, you know, the fear of making mistakes, the fear of being wrong, you know, all those things are just become roadblocks in um the best meaning folks, you know. Uh I would much rather deal with someone. And just say where they are and and be wrong and risk being wrong. That's then we can fix it, you know. But if oh. if you're so scared of being wrong or making a mistake, then we can't get anywhere. Or mm-hmm. or to have the courage to just ask a question, because yep. I think sometimes people don't want to know, don't want to admit that they don't know something or know how to handle something, so they don't want to ask the question and they feel really awkward and it ends up just making a big mess anyway. When you pretend that you know something yep. that you really don't know, yeah. Since the Thanksgiving play had such has already had such a beautiful life, it's hit so many different parts of the country. When it is received, how did you feel that those guests that were watching your play respond? Uh, I'd say, <laughs> in general, audiences like my plays better than reviewers, which is great. <laughs> I write to people. I yep. don't write to reviewers. So, you know, because I will be honest, the reviews have been very mixed um, in different places for the Thanksgiving play. Some people really love, some reviewers really love it, and some just hate it. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. outright hate it. <laughs> so that's fine. Um, that means they thought about it. I, I appreciate that. It left them thinking. My plays are supposed to leave you with questions, and they're supposed to leave you with things to discuss. All of my plays are. And so... Um, you know, some people don't like unresolved questions and mm-hmm. uh, that's fine with me. I, I hope it gets in your head like a little earworm and you can't get rid of it. Um, so that's that's great, in my opinion. But it, um, I think, you know, audience wise, I, I've been really fortunate. People have been really welcoming to the play. People that didn't fully um, feel like they are those the people <laughs> I'm representing. The nice thing is that I, I was interesting to watch like some folks that consider themselves out of the demographic of the play to say, oh, but that's my granddaughter. Or that's my my grandson, or that's um, the kids I'm teaching, and so then they started thinking, and it started to make them say, "Oh, okay, yeah, I see where they're coming from," and "Oh, yeah, I'm actually I'm part of that continuum that got to where they are." Um, you know, maybe a more conservative person that isn't voiced in the play can say, "Oh, yeah, I can see where I'm on this continuum, and I'm making some of these same mistakes in a different way," mm-hmm. um, because it is written to woke liberal folks. Um, but I think, you know, those folks, it's been really interesting to hear them in conversation saying how it, it's brought them to understand the next generation or two generations later a little better. And then also to be able to think about where their role was and how we got to where we are. I know that you are working on a lot of things. Can you talk to us about some of the other plays that you have coming down the pipeline and what's next for you? Yeah, so um, COVID um, for me has ended with a vengeance. Um, I have five plays <laughs> next year, which is Did you in write a row. them all during COVID? No, that's the thing. They're all from like wildly different times, but just suddenly all got scrunched together. So the Thanksgiving plays first. That opens at second stage at the Hayes in um, the spring in March. And then I go straight from opening night to Wichun, which is the play, um, my third play with Cornerstone Theater Company. And they'll, they'll be in South Dakota in my homelands. And it'll be a touring play with um, Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota um, community members. And we're going to be touring different communities throughout the state. So we'll be doing that next. And then I come straight back to LA and I'm doing Fake It Till You Make It with the Mark Taper Forum. And that one's brand new. We um, They announced it before I even 
conceived of the play. So, oh my um, God. <laughs> yeah, it's been kind of a horrifying experiment. Um, so it's a little, yeah, it's a little terrifying, but also great. And of course, someone told me, they're like, oh, it, actually a different theater that I'm um, on the board of Playwrights Horizons. And yeah. they told me, yeah, we did that once. And it was a complete disaster. <laughs> it's like, great. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate my word. How encouraging. Thank you so much for the honesty. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask yeah. you, what is the difference? Because you're commissioned a lot, yeah. right? To write plays. Yeah. Is the, is your process different when there is a, a presenter or a theater company that comes to you and, and commissions a play or something that just sparks you and inspires you to write? Because I read, if I read correctly, that it took you 10 days, like just 10 days to write the Thanksgiving play. It came from a place and you just started writing until it was finished. But when you're commissioned to do something is the process a little different yeah it definitely is different because i'm writing very specifically to audiences because i am trying to change people with my work i'm not just here to say i already had that career where i just got to do stuff um i'm here to try to change people so when i'm commissioned to a specific theater i go and i, I say i have to come and spend time with your audience and i have to see the space and i have to see shows in the space and i hang out in the bathroom line and i hang out in the ticket line and and I, I just listen to people talk and I go to, you know, listen to them and, and chat with them and get to know the audience and try to figure out like, what is it that would, that I can bring that's useful to this audience? Um, and how can I, you know, speak to them in a way that they want to hear and maybe then we'll also learn something. Um, you know, then it's a little different for like, well, then the next play I have actually, I can't announce, but it's, it's coming up um, after the taper. I have another one that's been another, this is a kind of a community hybrid one where we did actually talk to a lot of community and say, you know, what is it you want us to write about? And so we made it sort of a hybrid of a commissioning slash community engagement process um, where we, but we specifically spent a couple of years, well, like four years now, just ch chatting with community members and saying, what do you want us to write about? We're going to write a play set here in your town. What is, what do you want? And it's a main stage play, but we created it through input from community. Um, and actually then the last play I'm doing next year is Peter Pan, revision. And that's very different again, right? Because that's a tour that's then going to Broadway. Um, so I can't sit with the audience. So for the, a play like that, when it's even though it's a revision, um, I still spend a lot of time talking to people. I like to talk to people and write to people. So I've been talking to a stupid amount of people <laughs> that love Peter Pan and people that hate Peter Pan. Um, mm -hmm. And just talking to them and saying, what is it you love? What is it you hate? What is it, you know, what is it that's the heart of the scene that matters to you? Why is this important? Why is this such a memorable piece for you? You know, why was it such a hurtful piece for you? Something like Peter Pan, where it's a, you know, going all over the country, it's already booked for like a year of touring. Um, I just talked to anyone I could find that will talk to me about Peter Pan. <laughs> yeah, sure. And although, I mean, such a well-known property, mm -hmm. but your community is represented in that mm -hmm. piece. You know, there's yeah. a chieftain, there's an Indian princess. Mm -hmm. Will you make edits and changes so that it does feel more authentic to the indigenous people? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that whole section is going to change quite a bit. I mean, honestly, it's a beautiful piece. You know, it's the, it's the original, like, Broadway touring, you know, Mary Martin, Kathy Rigby, that, that version that I'm rewriting. It's beautiful. It's funny. It's, I mean, it's really hilarious and it's good. And it has all these lovely, lovely things. My goal in it is just to make it not cause harm. And yes. so where does it cause harm to women, people with um, different kinds of families, to mm -hmm. native people? Those are the things that I'm, I'm looking at. And I'm just uh, taking that play that so many people really truly love. I have no idea um, how much people love this play um, and just shifting the lens so that yeah. 
um, it's not causing harm to anybody. And we can still have the things you love about it without hurting others. When does that go out? When does the tour go out? Uh, we start, I think it goes out in November 23. Because I think we were rehearsing in October because we go straight from my fourth play to that. So I think we're rehearsing October, November, and then it starts, I think, then in November. Wow, and then, then the next holiday season, it'll be on Broadway. It's very encouraging to me that these, and I'm going to classify them as older properties, are willing to take a second, third, fourth look and saying, using your beautiful phrase, so that it doesn't cause harm. Mm -hmm. And because there are still, there's still such beautiful themes and music and language and lyrics that um, in the musical theater canon and so much of the art form did come from, you know, vulnerable communities and causing great harm to those communities. But you don't want to throw out these really beautiful pieces of work where there's so much to, to save, Mm -hmm. but they do, they need to be revisited. They need to be rewritten. They need to be looked at, like you said, with just a different lens so they can still be presented to audiences, but with a lot more care and awareness. See storytelling as sort of this living thing right? and nothing is the same all the time. And I think for its time, it said what it had to say. And in order to stay alive and to keep giving and living and growing, it has to change. It has to have a a breath of a new perspective and a new understanding that was previously uh, ignored. Yeah. Overlooked. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so I think it's not just about having a new piece. It's about, it's about keeping an old piece alive and growing. And I, I love that, that concept. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I, at the risk of turning into a fixer, I'm, um, fortunate that I'm doing, I'm working on two other, I can't name yet, but two other really well-known huge musicals. Um, One is to adapt it to film and one to television. But so it's that, it's like beloved, you know, properties that we all know and love. Um, And our hope is by, you know, first adapting them to film and TV that we can kind of then go backwards (laughs) to the stage and make them available because they're properties that aren't being done. They're beautiful, beautiful properties and they're not being done much because they just can't be because they are causing harm. And so we're hope that, you know, um, working with the licensing folks, they commissioned me to rework them for these other formats and, and then maybe we can go backwards and make them into the public stage versions. Yeah. When you say you go back to the reservations and you you work with the people there, is it mm-hmm. in a mentorship? Are there classes like art classes or do you produce plays? What does that look like? Yeah, so um, I myself and now, unfortunately, um, I have new partners with Cornerstone Theatre Company. So they've been working with me for five years going um, home as well now. We create plays, basically. Um, we do writing. And, and so instead of bringing in outside material, I really, my goal is to help people write their own stories always and to empower people to write their own stories. And so they write and perform their own work. We intentionally don't bring in outside work because we want to not in any way say that, you know, the work I've done or some other native playwright has done is should be uplifted above their own stories. And their stories are just as valid and incredible and better um, than anything I could ever write. So we just really empower people to do that themselves. Um, I think, you know, unfortunately, you know, a lot of people, uh, there's a lot of film people that come and work on on the reservations where I'm from and they come and they do these great workshops and they get kids really excited about film and TV, which is what they're always excited about, right? Because that's what they're used to seeing. Um, and then they leave and like, I was at the school once they're like, oh, do you want to see the camera? And I was like, uh, sure. And they show me this beautiful Canon camera that was left and all this equipment and, I was, and it's in, locked in this thing. And I was like, do you 
use it? And they're like, oh, well, no one, none of these students have electricity in their home. Oh. They don't have internet. And they, you know, so they're like, so, you know, yeah, we use it sometimes for, you know, things at school, but it's like, no one like thought about the fact that no, these people have electricity or internet, so they can't oh like, my gosh, shoot, so it's they like can't. this beautiful relic that's just sitting, yeah. but you exactly. have no access to. Exactly. They're like, yeah, we can use it here around town, but then we also worry about getting stolen. And, you know, so it's just like, it was so crazy. I was like, oh my gosh, did any of, and then, and they all took the workshop. I'm like, no one thought, none of these Hollywood people thought to ask like, Hey, do you have electricity? Can you use this? And that's sort of part of that narrow uh, do-gooder thinking that you were talking yeah. about. Like you're, yeah. you're only seeing it on a certain level. You're not getting down, really down mm-hmm. into what really needs to happen in order for them to yeah, be helpful. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure, Very you know, I'm sure those people felt really good about themselves and had a fantastic time and yeah. took lots of great pictures on the reservation. And I'm, sh- and, you know, and the kids had a, you know, this particular group was a school group and they had a great time. They loved it. And, and they loved the class and they had so much fun. But, you know, I mean, there's also, I'm sure, a certain amount of shame. You don't just volunteer up that you don't have electricity at home, yeah. you know, yep. and and no one's thought to ask and to realize. <laughs> so it was just, we're sitting there it was in this like trailer that they have for their classroom, this arts classroom. And they just like showed us, like I said, the relic, the, the camera and the equipment. And it's like, it's locked up. And I was just like, oh. So we write, we have them create theater. Um, we have them write and act it and perform it all within, you know, a week. Um <clears throat> usually off book, usually staged. I mean, uh, Michael Garces is an incredible director for that sort of thing. He's the artistic director of Cornerstone Theater Company right now and just an amazing director on his own. And he does an incredible job of working with communities and helping people. People have never spoken in front of a person, uh, an audience in their lives or suddenly have been performing their own work. And it's it's really incredible, incredible. Um, This last summer he had, we're working with, we work at this um, Lakota Youth Development in Milks Camp, South Dakota, which is part of my reservations. And we've been there a few times now. And um, the camp director, Marla, was like, this year, I was sure this is the year you'll have, there are kids that were not going to get on that stage. And they told us from day one, we were not getting on that stage. And he got every single one of them to perform. He's great. Have have you ever heard of the moth, the moth radio hour? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's very similar stuff where the Mm -hmm. the whole concept is everyone has a story to tell. And you just have to find the courage to get up and tell a part of your story. And you'll be yeah. amazed at how it resonates with so many other people, especially when it's honest, if you can tell right. an honest story, because it's just about the human experience. And it's really beautiful to watch. Here they come, our five questions. If you could be transported anywhere in the world, where would you go? Easy. I go Fair. home to South Dakota. Oh. <laughs> it's my land. It's our land. It's our it's our homelands. Um, Black Hills specifically, but also no. I know I'm torn. Torn between the Black Hills and the Prairie, going back and forth. That's easy. If we were to go into your closet, is there one garment or item that you will never get rid of because of the memories it holds for you? Yes, there is a dress I have that my mother made when she was 18 years old and living in Nigeria with my father. They'd just gotten married and she made it for herself. Um, I've been able to wear it at different times in my life. I can't anymore. She's a teeny little thing. Because my parents were so much older, I never got to know that young woman. I never Mm. got to know that 18, 19 to, you know, whatever it was, 20 something year old girl that was in Nigeria on her first adventure as a new married woman. And because I got married very young also, 
I just, I get really, I get really emotional. I'm getting very emotional about um, that dress because that makes me wish I'd known that woman, but also know that she helped form the woman I got to be. Oh, that's so beautiful. Really beautiful. Okay. Tell me one irrational fear that you have. Oh, spiders. Oh, really? <laughs> that's that easy. Was that was quick and easy. <laughs> I am terrified of spiders. Um, really ridiculously. I have, I once, my husband and I were in a park and I was climbing up on a jungle gym and I saw a spider at the top and I threw my, this one, I was still a dancer. So I had to be careful with my body. I threw myself off the top of this thing. My foot got caught. I, went, I mean, I got like badly injured. <laughs> but it's like, that's okay. Anything to save me from the spider. But you don't um, kill yeah. them, I hope. I, I, I sometimes do. Come yes. on, just catch I know, him and I know, put him outside. I know, I know. <laughs> but I also, I have a house in the mountains. It's like endless spiders. Um, endless. It's a lot. Of, it's a lot. <laughs> so yes, most, yeah, anyone knows me knows that uh, I just, it's ridiculous. I get really <laughs> out by spiders. All right, the last two are a little silly, but okay. if we were to call your husband and tell mm-hmm. him that you'd been arrested, what would he have assumed that you've done to get yourself in jail? gone over the top and defending someone um that mouthed off at the police um i'm a pacifist so he knows i wouldn't like attack anybody but he would assume i yeah i there was i felt that someone was being like arrested wrongly and had gotten over the top and trying to defend them and gotten in the way that's a good reason to be arrested yeah, yeah really i'll take it <laughs> okay if you were a nail polish color what color would you be and what would the cheeky little name be Shoot, I don't wear nail polish. Um, hmm. I know I've never had like a manicure in my life. Um, so really? I, I know. Yeah, it's weird. I, I know. need to take you out for a minute. You're an outlier. <laughs> You're one of the. Funny. I mean, I am. I've never had a manicure or a pedicure. I, I've never had a facial. I don't know. I don't. I don't do girl things. I think. Let's see. If I was going to pick a color, I'd probably go with. I mean, my my favorite color is like a dark brown. So uh-huh. I guess it'd be like a like an interesting kind of kind of sienna brownish oh, feeling sienna. thing, I guess. And oh my gosh, what would I call it? I no, no, I idea. know what you should call it. Can I tell you what to call it? Yes, please. Miracle Earth. Oh, there you go. For the miracle <laughs> baby and it's the color of earth. <laughs> I'll take it. And that's you know, you're talking about the Perfect. prairie and the mountains. Miracle Earth. Come there. on now. I love it. <laughs> I have a really bad that's habit of naming everybody's nail polish you do <laughs> jump in I, I don't know any <laughs> well i don't know any because i've never had any <laughs> it has oh, been gosh. a real privilege a real privilege yeah. thank you we know how busy you are okay. congratulations on all down. all the goodness <laughs> thank, thank you have a great thank day. you Bye. take have care a great day. coming up next what struck a chord with us right after this break y'all Stages is now sponsored by BetterHelp, and I couldn't be more excited because I love therapy. So I encourage you, if you've had a tough year and a half, (laughs) why don't you give them a shot? You can find a therapist that you can connect with. Their resource is thousands of therapists, well-trained and experienced. You can keep looking until you find someone that you click with. They have customized online therapy, They do offer videos, but they also offer phone and live chat sessions. So you don't even have to be seen. You can only be heard. What are you waiting for? Go to BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P dot com slash stages. And for our cast members, you get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash stages. Go, go, go. Go find your healing. Go find your happy. Stages podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. 
That's H-E-L-P. I'm really interested to see this play. As am I. Yeah. As am I. I read a little bit, not only the... um, the synopsis, but the casting of it was really yeah. interesting too, that it has been produced in many different theaters, but you know, there is a character breakdown and it says person of color, most of which they cast people of color, but can pass or identify mm-hmm. as a white person or a Caucasian mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. So um, it's interesting to think that she is uh, giving opportunities for people of color, but these people of color for the purpose and service of this particular play mm-hmm. have to pass as white. Yeah. And I think that that would change the storytelling quite a bit because their walk through life is very different, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I also wanted to ask, did you happen to see uh, Tracy Let's play The Minutes? No. Which also takes place in like a, a town hall idea. It's uh, autumn is coming up at the very end. There is a ritual that takes place that speaks to the Native Americans in mm. their area. It's quite shocking. It takes a really severe left turn where you're like, oh my gosh, how did we end up here? And it ends... Um, where the audience is walking out with a crap load of questions. But as Larissa says, you know, she's not looking to put a, a punctuation at the end or give you an answer at the end. Yeah, she wants not everything is buttoned up. She in wants life. things to germinate within you and to ask yeah. questions and to look things up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm interested to get see informed. exactly. Yeah. 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 How that inspires people to get informed. And I can't even believe that she was saying in the eighties, she oh would gosh. walk into a store and see a sign that says no, no Indians and no dogs. I oh can't, gosh. you know, I don't know if you remember this, but when we were in Will Rogers I was in the nineties, I was going to bring this up. There was that sign on the side of the highway. You know how they That's have right. to clean up the highway side. That's right. This, this highway, highway is sponsored by the, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Yes. And I yeah. remember driving past that and saying, well, I can't even believe that this still exists. Still exists. Somewhere anywhere in the world. Yeah. And not inwardly, like outwardly, no, just a, right a out highway there. sign. Now, was that in Missouri or was that in Arkansas? It was in Missouri, I believe. It was in Missouri. Yeah. I mean, I, it was, do you remember what we did at Christmas? Do you remember this? I don't know if I remember. Oh my gosh. It was, it was maybe six of us. Goddard was there and Louisa and Wendell and a whole bunch of people. We got all dressed up as peace, love, and happiness. And um, so one of the guys was in drag and um, Louisa and I were like, we were like lesbians in the photo. And we, I mean, we dressed up, took a photo in front of this sign on the side of the highway. And then we made it into a postcard and sent it to the KKK headquarters. I didn't remember that at all. Said Merry Christmas. Didn't remember that at all. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I have that photo in a frame still somewhere. I got to find it. It was hysterical. Hysterical, but also making a political statement. Yeah. Perhaps putting yourself in a bit of danger. Um, Louisa was one of our dancers. She is a person of color. She's a black actress. So for her to put her face out there and to make such a social and cultural statement. Yeah. That's a, that's a brave thing. That's a brave act. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's time. It's time for all of us to be brave, you know, not 
to sit and go, ah, oh, what's the state? What's the climate? How safe is it to say something? Or just, you know, yelling out into our own little sort of echo chamber of people who always agree with us. But truly on, um, should we say when we're recording this? On November the 8th, and it's, you know, we're voting today. For the I'm voting as soon as we hit up. Yeah. So it's a real, it's the time and place where our democracy is in question and taking these brave stances, regardless if it's political or not. But like Larissa says, to speak her truth, you know, yeah. to say, I might be viewed as such, but I have to tell my truth and this is what it is regardless you know, of the the kickback or the knee-jerk yeah. reaction that might follow and it's a really interesting thing when you're having these political discussions with people which i i tend not to have them very often in my life with a lot of people because we're all seeing things from our perspective our experience yes. our vantage point our traumas everyone thinks that they are in possession of the magic truth glasses you know they put on their glasses from their vantage point they see the truth but what they don't understand is that the other person is wearing their own set of glasses and seeing their own truth and thinking that they're in possession of the truth and we have to accept people for their individual view of the world no matter how foreign it is or skewed that it might seem to you you don't have to expose yourself if it's harmful to you or to others, but you do have to practice civility and you do have to realize that they're entitled to see the world from their point of view, through their own lenses, their own experience. I mean, it's sort of what Kevin Ryan was saying in the last episode, you know, it's our ego or our hubris that we think that we can change or fix or force something to change to the way we want to see it. When that's not our job, our job is just to love the other person. That's it. It's now this imagery of uh, we still want to come to the table, but it's less about wanting to listen to each other yeah. and have like a conversation that could maybe think a different way, not looking to change anyone, but literally have a discussion instead of coming to the table, wanting to prove your point, right? Yeah. There's got to be an openness of spirit to just have a conversation but with you, and you, But you also have to be okay when you respect someone's boundaries where they say, I don't want to discuss this because sure. it makes me angry and upset and uncomfortable and let's discuss something else. You sure. have to respect that as well. But this is yeah. why I love this moth thing that I am literally obsessed with. I'm obsessed with the moth radio hour obsessed well you're also kicking the moth's ass so well, i'm having a very are. good time with it <laughs> i really am i'm having a little too much fun with my moth stories um but why i love it is because these people that you don't know you're in a room full of strangers they get up and they tell their true story from their perspective it can't be argued with you have nothing to teach them it's their story and they're they're finding the courage to share it with you and whatever little, little grain of, of learning or happiness or, or sadness or understanding that you take away from it, that was theirs to give you. And I, yes. I just, I just love the whole process of the moth. I just well, love that's it. What connects us. The stories are what connect yeah. us. Storytelling Not, is really powerful. Yes. It's something as, as universal as, 
what Larissa is writing, or you look at Fiddler on the Roof, which again, you think, oh, this is a, a Jewish musical. No, it's not. It is a universal musical that is talking about family, that is talking about community, that is talking about marriage and death and all of the cornerstones. If you just close your eyes and listen to the story, you're getting to the heart of the person. And there you can recognize yourself. And once you can recognize yourself in another person, then you can start to build respect. So I don't know if you saw this, but one of our listeners put this out. And to me, it's like the biggest compliment we could possibly get for our podcast. She said, ignore the toxicity in the world for an hour and just be in the moment with this wonderful podcast. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll start to believe in people again. Mm. Isn't that the nicest? Yeah. I was like, thank you. I think I shared it everywhere because that was our goal. You know, that was so- our goal. And Brenda, I'll be real honest, like uh, through the course of days or, or weeks or whatever, I too, the toxicity is everywhere yeah. that regardless of how you center yourself, we as the hosts come and start to believe in people again, too, when we have these yeah. conversations, yeah. you know? And it's, it's also because we have the full moon and the eclipse. It's a blood moon. So things are a little crazy right now. Things are crazy. If we're going to get into all my woo-woo stuff. You are going to get the moon. into stuff. I also need you to look up th- what the number 22 means in okay, numerology. Because we'll that, we'll that, that really was, that's a very specific number that comes up in two major, major parts of her life. Yeah, let me Google it. Let me Google it. Yeah. Oh. Soul number 22 is perceived as the most powerful and creative number of all. Larissa, I just got chills through my whole body. Isn't that amazing? It's really cool. Really cool. (laughs) So, so interesting. Uh, Well, that was wonderful. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, my friend. Love you. Love you. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you loved this episode or any of our episodes, please follow, subscribe, and share on all your social media platforms. Go ahead and give us five stars and a review. That helps us a lot. You can always find us at stagespodcast.net. Thank you to Allison Arns, our booking agent, Brock Grenfeld, our sound engineer, Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy for our original music, and Tina Wargo, our social media manager. Stages Podcast is produced and edited by me, Mary Lee Fairbanks, and Stephanie J. Block. And thank you to all of you, our cast members, for listening. We'll see you real soon.